The reading tonight is from the book of Nahum, chapter 3, which is page 938, if you're looking at one of the Bibles on your chair. So Nahum, chapter 3. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who can mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi, everyone. Good evening. My name is Jason, and I have the the privilege of bringing the word to you tonight. Although when I got the email that I would be preaching on Nahum, I, you know, you flip, I didn't know anything about Nahum. Like, who here knew what was in Nahum? I flipped through it and I was like, tough, right? <laughs> tough word. I don't know about you, we have this tradition. It sounds like lots of you know it, but I'll repeat it because we don't always do it anymore. But after we read scripture in sort of a public setting like church, it's typical for the reader to say, this is the word of the Lord, and for us all to respond, thanks be to God. Which is really great if you're reading Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Thanks be to God. Feels good, right? Or the end of Matthew, Jesus says, I will be with you wherever you go. Easy to say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Here's one of my favorites. I'm reading it for you because it's one of my favorites. This is Romans 8, 38 and 39. Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor the things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord easy, right? Amen. <laughs> that feels really good. But then we come to Nahum 3. We read, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? And it doesn't feel so natural anymore to say, thanks be to God. It's almost awkward. I, I sit there, oh, thanks be to God. 
The book of Nahum is a, a short prophecy proclaiming judgment and destruction on Nineveh. And it's pretty doom and gloom. The weather tonight fits the, the passage we have. Yet the prophet says in chapter 1 that this is good news. And we believe that, right? Like, I think at least theoretically, we're like, this is the Bible. It's the word of God passed down to, through the prophets to us. So it's good that we say thanks be to God, right? But how? How can this be good news? How can this dark, terrifying prophecy of judgment written almost 3,000 years ago be good news for us today? And how can we be thankful for it? That's the question that I want us to grapple with tonight. And we need the Lord's help. So let's start with prayer, and then we'll dig in. Lord, please help us to understand your word. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand the way that you're revealing yourself in Scripture. Amen. Okay, <laughs> let's go for it. So each of you should have one of these little posters. They're super nice and helpful. And on the front side, there's this beautiful sort of visual depiction of the book. And then if you'll flip through the pages, you have, you have the, whole of, uh, the whole of Nahum here. So I'll be flipping back and forth and referring to both. So please be ready to flip with me. Uh, we'll be going through this in, in as much detail as we can in 25 minutes. And we could just start with a basic overview to get our bearings. So if you'll turn your attention to the top left of the picture, you can look at that while I, while I speak to you. Basically, like I said, this is a prophecy of judgment against Assyria, which is one of the sort of first large evil superpowers of the world history, basically. And its capital city is Nineveh. Now you might be more familiar with Nineveh from another prophetic book called Jonah. And Jonah's a lot more popular, and I think the reason why is because God proclaims judgment on Nineveh, and then Jonah comes and tells them, he says, you know, woe is the city, and everyone repents, and then God pulls back his wrath. That's a better story, right? So that maybe explains why it's more popular, but apparently that repentance was not lasting. The people and their king again turned to evil, because here in Nahum, we get this picture of coming judgment on the city and the nation. And these are, of course, historical events. They do happen. Uh, Assyria, sort of at the height of its power, all of a sudden imploded and was destroyed by another uh, empire called Babylon. So this all is sort of the historical background of what happened. But let's dive into the text together. So if you'll turn with me to chapter 1, and we'll begin at verse 2 here. Because it, I, I, we read from later on in chapter 3, but it starts off with this really jarring and bold statement. It says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. So it starts just the way it finishes, you see. And immediately, you get this very intense picture of God. Yahweh, the Lord, is jealous. He's full of wrath. He brings vengeance. These aren't the attributes of God that, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I'm reflecting on in my, you know, my quiet time. Oh, yes, the Lord, jealous, wrathful, angry. And they're important. They're important, right? But I also think that it's important to balance those out with a, a bigger picture of God. And that's why, helpfully, uh, we get this in, in verse 3. It says, the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. 
The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. And there you kind of get both sides, right? What Nahum is doing here is he's actually quoting from Exodus 34, a very famous passage in the scriptures. And you don't have to go there, but I can, I can read it for you. Moses is speaking to God, and God reveals himself to Moses. And God says, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. So it's this beautiful picture of God. But it also says that God will forgive wickedness and rebellion, good, but that God will not clear the guilty. And that's what I think Nahum is getting at here. On the one side, on the one hand, God is slow to anger. But on the other, he will deal with sin. You know, it's just not everything goes in God's world. So as we're reading about God's anger, wrath, and judgment in Nahum, I don't think we should get this picture of just God throwing a tantrum. You know, he's just sort of lost control of himself. His anger is pouring over. That's not it. You know, that sounds a little bit like us, right? When we're mad, we sort of snap at each other or whatever. God is slow to anger. Right? His mercies are everlasting, and yet there is a time for God to deal with sin. And that's kind of the back and forth that we're going to track throughout Nahum. So if you'll turn your attention to, with me to the next few verses, kind of the second half of three down to six there. Uh, I'm not going to read it all, but you can see that we've got this vivid picture. Nahum says, his way is on the whirlwind and the storm. The sea dries up. The mountains quake and melt. The earth is trembling. Rocks are shattered. And then in verse 6, we get this terrifying question. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? It's this awesome picture of God approaching. He's coming down out of the whirlwind from heaven. And all of earth is just melting before him. Rocks are shattering. This is what happens when God comes down in wrath and judgment. And I don't know about you, but the impression this makes on me, and the impression I think it's supposed to make on us, is, whoa, I do not want to be on the receiving end of this wrath. You do not want to be the evil nation who has to face the wrath of God. Who can stand before the Lord Almighty? Who can endure? But th thankfully, sort of just in time, maybe, in the next verse, we get this reassurance. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. And it's this beautiful reminder that if we make God our refuge instead of rebelling, if we look to him, he is gracious and merciful, and he cares for us, and he wants to look after us. And do you see how that reminder kind of flips the big, powerful, scary image of God around. To hear that God executes vengeance, that the earth trembles before him, that's a scary thing. But it's only scary if you are in opposition to God, if he's coming against you. If you are taking refuge in him, if he's your protector, then that image is a comfort. This is why we sing songs in our service like Almighty Fortress. You go before us. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. We sing that song often here. And we sing these songs about God being mighty because that's a reassuring thought. If God is our protector, if he is our refuge, 
that we want to hear that he is strong and mighty, that the earth bows before him. So this is the image of God in Nahum 1 that can be a comfort for us. But it's a terrifying image if you're against him. And if you just want to flip back to the diagram, it, it kind of visually draws this out. So if you look at kind of the left-hand side where it says chapter 1 there on the left-hand side, on the top side you see the fate of the nations, the nations who have put themselves against God. You see the rocks splitting, everything falling apart, right? And then on the bottom half you see the fate of God's people. Those who take refuge in him and they're worshiping and it's peaceful. And that's kind of the two sides that Nahum is drawing out here. God uses his power for protecting his people and putting an end to violence, injustice, and evil. And this is why we can come to this crucial verse at the end of chapter 1, verse 15, that says, Look there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who publishes peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. So there's an image here. This, this kind of conjures up the image of a messenger running from the battlefield back over the mountains to the city, proclaiming God is one. God has defeated the enemy. This is good news. We can celebrate. And the good news in this situation is that God is going to destroy the evil oppressor the nations that come against his people. And it's good news that God will be a refuge. That's the good news in Nahum. And I think that frame helps us understand chapters two and three, which are, again, quite vivid, quite dark, because they portray the downfall of Nineveh and Assyria. Like we read before, it's it's, it's almost amazing how, how scary it is. But what we need to know is that this is God dealing with evil. He's dealing with the, this oppressive nation. So we'll dig into it. You can probably stay on the picture side because we're not going to read through all of chapters 3 and 4. But I'll give you as, you, as you look at this picture, I'll read you some examples. So chapter 2 kind of depicts especially the siege and fall of the city. And you get all these sort of military and kind of siege metaphors. I can read a couple of them for you here. So verse 2, 3 says, The shields of the soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal of the chariots flashes on the day that they are made ready. So this refers to sort of armies approaching Nineveh, the city. And you can see in the picture, there's, there's also some verses about chariots as well. And then in verse 9, we read these words. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, the wealth from all its treasures. And what you should hear in, in sort of that poetry is the voice of soldiers who are crying out and they're plundering the city. And in the picture, we have that funny picture of the big money bag. And that's supposed to represent these soldiers sort of plundering the city. And then the chapter ends with the Lord saying, I'm against you. So again, this is, this is a poetic portrayal of the enemy coming and destroying the city of Nineveh. Then, in chapter 3, as we read earlier, the attention turns a, a little broader scope. We still see Nineveh, but it's more about this whole destruction on Nineveh. And I think the first verse is really helpful for us. It says, Woe to the city full of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. I think that helps give us a sense of why this judgment is coming. This is a city and a nation, a regime, 
that is built on blood, the blood of its victims. It's full of deceit, full of plunder, right? Plunder that's like stolen wealth, stolen goods. Assyria has exploited the vulnerable. Assyria has taken advantage of the weaker peoples, and God is going to put an end to it. So the whole chapter kind of goes on and on about the destruction of Assyria, how weak their armies are before the Lord, and all that's coming. And then it finishes in 319 with this last line of the Lord through Nahum. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the good news about you will clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? And this is the Lord's final verdict, right? Like I said before, there were chances for Nineveh to repent. God had sent prophets, but now it's too late. Destruction is sure, and the peoples will clap. We have that in our picture. You see different people celebrating who experienced the dark reign of Assyria. When people hear this news of downfall, it's good news. It's good news when God puts an end to evil. And it was good news that God destroyed Assyria. And that is kind of a bleak message, right? That's the end of the book. That's what we're left with. But I do think that this is still good news for us today. Even something that we can take comfort and encouragement in. I think part of the reason it's hard for us to hear this in our context is that we're maybe not living under the same conditions that the Israelites were at this time. If we were living under the oppression of a violent and abusive nation, then perhaps it would be more obvious how this is good news. If we were to ask our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine how this message applies to their lives, I imagine it wouldn't be that difficult. And knowing that the God who makes the mountains quake will put an end to injustice in the world, I'm sure would be a comfort to them. And it's important to remind ourselves of that because it doesn't always look that way in the moment. Like when, when the evil nations are reigning, it doesn't look like God is going to put an end to it. I mean, when Nahum spoke this prophecy, Assyria was at the height of its power it would have been clear that they were all of a sudden going to like fall down out of nowhere. But that's what's happened. And over and over in history, the same thing has happened. If you look at the pictures right under the sort of title Nahum there, there's sort of a few examples of nations and rulers who were powerful and mighty and violently abused others, and they're all gone. Babylon is gone. Persia is gone. Greece is gone, Rome is gone, the Byzantine Empire is gone, the Third Reich is gone. These powers, it seems like they're too strong and their rule will never end. And we don't know who will stop their evil. But if they set themselves against God and violently oppress others, they will be brought down. God is grieved by the violence that he sees in the world and he does put an end to it. If we're looking at the big picture of history, we see that play out again and again. But perhaps that's not something that we're facing here today. I mean, our government is far, very far from perfect, and there's lots of corruption, but perhaps not quite on the scale of one of these great and terrible nations from history, at least not yet. But I still think there are moments in our lives when we are confronted with the great evils of the world. 
systematic evil or terrible corruption, and it hurts the soul. It makes us think, how, God, why? Why do you allow this in your world? I mean, one of the biggest questions, um, one of the problems that people have with Christianity or just God in general is that if there's a, if there's a gr- if there's good God, why does he allow evil to happen, right? Classic question. Why does he allow suffering? And a big moment like this for me, it was a, a few years ago when I was in college, maybe five or six years ago, a group came through and they'd done a lot of research and they were sharing about the realities of human trafficking in the world. And just hearing about that, hearing about how especially women and children are treated worldwide, when you're confronted with that kind of evil, it really crushes you. It left me in this place where I'm like, God, like how? How long can that go on? Why do you let that happen? Why don't you do something, right? That's what we want God to do. We want God to do something. And I think we can take real comfort from this passage, real encouragement from the good news in Nahum. God sees the injustice. He sees the violence in the world, and he will not allow it to go on forever. He will do something. And I'm not sure how all of you have seen this, but I'm sure that everyone in here, whether in their own families, in their own lives, or what they've heard about, you've seen the evil in the world. It's come right up to you. You've felt what I was describing. And in those dark moments, I want to say, take comfort. God promises to put an end to these systems, these regimes, and these nations. And ultimately, if we think on a cosmic scale, God promises to make one final, once for all, end of sin and violence forever. So both sort of within history, again and again, God is putting an end to these evil regimes. But also at the end of history, it will all be put right forever. That's the good news. And one second point I want to pull away for us today, just very briefly, is that I think there's also an implicit warning here. This good news that God's going to deal with violence and injustice is not good news if you are Nineveh. We do not want to find ourselves opposing God, right? You don't want to find yourself on the side of the oppressor instead of the side of the oppressed, And there's, of course, all kinds of ways this can work itself out, so it's hard to put my finger on one example. But just one thing I wanted to think about, in light of how much um, plunder is brought up in the book, is the, the, the scariness of greed. We can gain financially in our modern world if we are willing to turn a blind eye to how the plunder is accrued. Of course, That's just one example. There's all kinds of other ways. The point is this. We need to watch ourselves. We do not want to be found siding with the oppressor against the oppressed. We do not want to have to stand before God. Who can endure? Of course, it's the good news that God is both gracious and merciful. Otherwise, we'd all find ourselves on that side. We'd all find ourselves opposing God. But he is willing to forgive us and redeem us. He is gracious. He wants to be our refuge. He wants to be our protector. But it is also good news that God will not pass over sin. Evil will not have the last word. God will make an end of injustice. 
He has throughout history. He will continue to do this, and ultimately, he will in the end. That is the good news, and that's something we can take comfort in. That's a word that we can receive and truly say, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, um, just as I was preaching here, I'm thinking about the evils of the world um, again. And we pray tonight that you would, you would put an end to those evils. Of course, um, it, it's natural to think of what's going on uh, between Russia and the Ukraine right now, but there's so many other things. Um, and I'm just going to leave a moment for us to pray silently, but Lord, put an end to the evils that we see. Just lift those things to the Lord. Lord, put an end to evil like you promised to, so that we can clap our hands and rejoice, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.